Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even then, if, you, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from Uh, what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? It's a great text for us this morning and an entryway for us into that text and understanding its particular main point is I want to share with you some excerpts of a poetic speech that was once given that you may have heard before. It begins, or the parts that I'm going to begin with, I am the greatest. (laughs) This is by Cassius Clay. This is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter in the world today. He talks a great deal and brags indeedy of a muscular punch that is incredibly speedy. The fistic world was dull and weary with a champ like Liston. Things had to be dreary. Then someone with color, someone with dash, brought fight fans rushing with cash. This brash young fighter is something to see, and the heavyweight champion is his destiny. The kid fights great. He's got speed and endurance. But if you sign to fight him, increase your insurance. The kid's got a left. The kid's got a right. If he hits you once, you're asleep for the night. And as you lie on the floor while the ref counts to ten, you pray that you won't have to fight me again. For I am the man this poem is about. The next champ of the world, there isn't a doubt. If Cassius says a cow can lay an egg, don't ask how. Grease the skillet. He is the greatest. When I say two, there's never a third. Betting against me is completely absurd. When Cassius says a mouse can outrun a horse, don't ask how. Put your money where your mouse is. I am the greatest. Well, there's a little bit of bravado going on in that poetic expression. All to say, he didn't think he was going to lose the next fight, or any fight thereafter. Arrogance. Arrogance, unfortunately, is woven into all of us. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've achieved, the constant battle 
of arrogance and pride rages within us. God in our passage this morning, Romans 11, uses an atypical pathway from an agricultural or horticultural standpoint. And in doing so, He reminds us that His thoughts are not our thoughts and His ways are not our ways. He works in ways that are mysterious to us. And this should provide us with a growing awe, not for ourselves, but for Him. Ultimately, this passage is leading you and I to understand that God has a glorious future for His people to whom He has made unbreakable promises. But part of this process that He uses is He utilizes um, uh, in this process of bringing about a restoration or redemption for Israel is the jealousy that the people of Israel would feel that the blessings of God are bestowed upon the Gentiles. God uses this jealousy to stir them up. A negative element of jealousy um, produces a positive, a positive affection for something that they wish they had. But in the process, God unearths something in this pathway. And that unearthing for us is the possibility, the potential, and the likelihood of pride. So in the process of describing how God will bring about the redemption of His people Israel, He warns us about sinful pride that it is embedded in our nature. And so this morning we'll discuss four actions that God calls us to in light of His certain plan to fulfill His promises to Israel. Look at verse 16. Verse 16. This is the conclusion of the last paragraph. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. The root most likely is a reference to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God set them aside and made promises for them and through them of His uh, relationship with Israel and the ultimate uh, redemption of uh, a people for himself. And because the root is holy, so also are the branches. God has an anticipation, a demonstration that he will also bring in uh, many Jewish people into saving faith in the long haul. That's really this next portion of the passage is talking about that imagery of the root and the branches. Because God has already done this and made this promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He is ensuring its fulfillment in those that would come after Him. In verse 17, He lets us know that if some of the branches were broken off, if some of the branches were broken off, so He's talking now about some of those that came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were broken off, but he's already told us why they were broken off. It's because of their unbelief. He reaffirms that later in this passage. He lets us know that all the while, while some of the branches were broken off, there's been a remnant. Remember, we've talked about that residue of the people. That, that while some of the Jewish people through unbelief have been set aside, there has been a consistent group of people 
even among the people of Israel that have trusted in God's promises, particularly through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he went through and says, I'm one of them. Remember that from last week? And not only that, um, there has been a, a remnant even in Elijah's day. Do you remember? There were 7,000 that had not bowed the knee to Baal. And then he said, and even now, even today, there's a remnant. And we looked in the book of Acts and saw that thousands upon thousands of Jews had trusted Jesus Christ. Well, that remnant has continued. God has kept that remnant for himself. However, some of those branches were broken off. God brought in that, uh, uh, set them aside. And in the process of that, it was not for nothing. It was for something very particular. Through that setting aside of certain elements of the Jewish people, God brought in a great multitude of Gentiles. So God did it for something. And so what he then does now is he's going to talk about an analogy of the branches being Jews that have been set aside and new branches from wild olive trees that have been grafted in referencing the Gentiles. He's going to talk about the fact that, that as Gentiles come to faith in Christ, they're grafted into, look at what it says at the end of verse 17, they're grafted into the nourishing root of the olive tree. It can be translated the root of fatness. We all want to be connected to the root of fatness. Fat in those days was a compliment. <laughs> Not P-H-A-T, like the, you know, a, a generation ago when, they, when everyone was talking about, oh, that's really, that's fat. Remember that one? That was a, it was a great phase. Everyone wants to call something fat. Not that kind of fat. We're talking about actual plumpness was a sign of blessing. And what he says is now we've been grafted in, those that have trusted Jesus Christ, we've been grafted in to that root of fatness, that root of plenty or of abundance. What is that root? It's the, it's the root of God. And, he, and he's just using a picturesque way of saying the same thing he said in the last pack, uh, paragraph. He said in verse 11 that there was salvation that has come to the Gentiles. In verse 12, he talked about that there's riches to the world and riches to the Gentiles. And then in verse 15, that there's reconciliation. So he used technical terms in, in verses 11 through 15. Now he's using imagery to convey the same thing. He's saying he wants the Gentiles, as they've come into faith, they've been attached to the root of nourishment, the root of richness that God has provided. But in the process of doing this, cutting off some of the branches, Israelites, and grafting in Many wild branches, there's a problem that comes to the forefront. And it's a problem that we all face. It's a problem of a sense of entitlement or arrogance. Isn't that what happened among the people of Israel? We're God's people. Remember Jesus was offering freedom to the people of Israel when He was preaching and they said, Hey, what are you talking about? We're the people of Abraham. We've never been in bondage to anyone. Uh, uh, you're giving me a migraine. <laughs> Do you not remember Egypt? Anyone? Anyone remember Assyria? Anyone remember Babylon? Remember all the times in between Egypt and Assyria and Babylon when the Philistines would come in and, and you'd be subject to them? Do you remember any of this? How about this? Remember uh, right now that Rome is ruling over you? Anyone? Bueller? 
Anyone? You don't remember any of this? What's wrong? We're people of Abraham. You don't need to tell us anything. Everything is going to be fine. I know who my daddy is. Well, mamas and daddies can't save you. That was true then. That's true today. And that's going to be true all the rest of the days of our lives. Mommies and daddies cannot save your soul. Only one can save your soul. His name is Jesus. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, warns the readers of the book of Romans in the first century, the second century, and the 21st century. He warns us not to think just because we have been associated with the Gospel, associated with the people of God, associated with the Bible, that doesn't entitle me to salvation. Salvation comes only when we recognize our sin, we turn from our sin, and we turn to Jesus Christ, embracing Him. God forgives our sin and grants us eternal righteousness and eternal life. It's the only way that anyone has ever been saved is by turning from their sin and believing what God has promised. We know at this point in time that that promise centers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way to the Father. This is clear. So, coming to church, saying, oh, I'm part of the nourishing root of richness. Coming to church does not make one part of the nourishing root of richness. Repentance and faith in Christ makes one part of the nourishing root of richness. And Paul warns Gentile readers from the 1st century to the 21st century that we ought not be arrogant and think that we have a special place because we are Gentiles, because we are part of the church, like associated with the church. The only privileged position is when God makes me one of His children. And how does He make me one of His children? To all who believe on His name. That's what John 1.12 says. That's how I become a child of God, to believe on His name. And so He tells us, first of all, do not be arrogant. Do not be arrogant. Look at verses 18-20. through 20. Do not be arrogant toward the branches... If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. The deciding factor between receiving God's blessing or receiving God's judgment is whether or not we trust Him. Do we believe Him? They were broken off in verse 20 because of their unbelief. The readers of Romans 11, particularly that first generation, they were standing fast. They had a a standing before God and it was because of faith. God is the one who makes us worthy. It is about His limitless mercy. It's about His abundant 
grace. It's all about Him. Why would anyone respond to God's blessing with arrogant pride? God shows no partiality. Genesis, excuse me, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 6 says, God shows no partiality. I'm going to look at a passage of Scripture. It's a reminder for us. It's something that we're familiar with. Take a look at Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We're talking about the possibility of sinful pride. And you can see the, the challenge that the people that the Lord Jesus illustrates in this parable in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. It's an illustration of an Israelite that thought because they were connected with Abraham that they were okay. And a Gentile who knew that they needed what God had to offer. What a, what a grave difference. Look at verse 9 and following. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank You that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. What does the next part say? Rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the ultimate illustration of spiritual pride. I am a religious man born of Abraham. I do all of these things. Jesus says you're trusting in yourself that you're righteous. Isaiah had something to, to say about the righteousness that we accrue to ourselves. Remember, it's filthy rags. Paul had something to say about how he viewed after his, after his salvation, how he viewed all the efforts that he had put in before. Remember, all of these works that I used to think were great, now I think they are dung. They're rubbish. Why? Because I want to actually win Christ. One person spiritually thinks that they've got it all together and that God owes them something. And the other person recognizes their actual condition and that's this. I am a sinner. I need from you mercy. Please, humility, be merciful, pleading, to me, a sinner, humble. What a difference between these two. And Jesus leaves no room for a lack of understanding. One of these men went home justified. The other left in the same unrighteous, ungodly, condemned position that they came to the temple in. 
Spiritual pride is an absolute destroyer of true Christianity. You cannot think well of yourself and see Christ properly. You cannot at the same time look highly upon yourself and look highly upon Christ. As Christ increases, I decrease. I recognize my desperate need and I have utter thanksgiving that is offered to Him because I recognize I deserve nothing. How is it that you see yourself? I can sniff out pride from a mile away. I always detect it in others. And sometimes I ignore the pride right here. And if you're a brother or a sister in Christ, I want to challenge you as I challenge myself. It's not about that person's pride and that person's pride and that person's pride or the pride of the people in the text. I must deal with the pride that arises within me. And if I don't recognize the pride arising within me, there's a real problem with me. There are so many warnings in Scripture against pride, both by direct instruction and by example. Think of these in Proverbs 11.2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. In Proverbs 16.8, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You know, we can be proud in our standing before God. We can be proud in our achievements. We can be proud of our educational accomplishments. We can be proud of our political views or our social standing or our doctrinal position. It's essential that we remember that without God's grace and goodness toward us, we would remain in our sin. Without God's goodness and grace toward us, we would remain in our sin. We would be separated from God for eternity. And if you think about the, the social side of things where we think you know, we've, we've accomplished all these things in our lives, how much work would it take for God to take away my mind? How much work would it take for God to derail my physical abilities that I prize myself on? Nothing. It would take nothing. You see it happen. It's a, it's a sad situation where you see a person in one day in really perfect wellness and health, and the very next day, everything in their lives has changed because they can't think properly anymore. They can't do properly anymore. God has taken away their abilities. It takes one moment. So you and I must recognize that every gift we have, whether it be spiritually speaking or physically speaking, every gift we have comes from Him. We're reliant upon 
Him for it. You may have worked diligently, and I, I commend you for that. I may have worked diligently, and, and I'm, I'm happy about that. But, but I can't do any of these things if the Lord doesn't give me the ability to. God warns you and He warns me about pride. The consequences of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think cannot be overstated. These passages that we just noted uh, reference these three words. Disgrace that results from pride. He talks about destruction that results from pride. And he talks about failure that results from pride. These, These concepts, these can't be overstated. So we're warned not to be arrogant And we're given the perfect remedy. Head back to Romans chapter 11. Let's take a look at the perfect remedy for our pride. I'm being more distracted by these monitors than helped by them, so I'm going to shut them off because it's actually making me lose my concentration because they're not keeping up or or the computer isn't functioning or I'm not sure exactly what the deal is. So... We're moving from do not be arrogant, right? And now God is going to give us the remedy for that arrogance, and that is we must fear the Lord. Take a look now in verse, verses 18 and following. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you, are, uh, if you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. This is a really important statement. God is letting us know about the source of our blessing. We're not the one that supports the root. We don't make the root better. The root is actually what is the source of the blessing that God wants to give us. God uh, lets us know that we have this knowledge that we need to bring about the fear of the Lord. And so He gives us this instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Uh, You might summarize verse 18 where He talks about uh, the root supporting us. You might summarize it this way. Like, Jesus said to the woman of a woman at the well in Samaria. Remember, he said that salvation is of the Jews. The root supports you. The root supports you. Salvation is of the Jews. In uh, Romans chapter three and verse one, that the the Jews were given the oracles of God, the the proclamations of God, that God provides that for them, and we have them as a result of God passing it down through the Jewish people. In uh, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, God talks about the fact that uh, through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. You can see how the, the root is supporting the Gentile believer. It's because of God's work through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the children of Israel where God preserved that remnant all through the years, ultimately culminating in the arrival of Jesus Christ that the Gentiles have experienced salvation. So the root supports us is essentially the concept. Later on in this very text, look down at verse 26. Verse 26. It says, In this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from... What is that next word? Zion. That's a reference to the place where the king of Israel would reside. It's a reference to where David's throne was that God has promised would continue through the person of Jesus Christ. The deliverance comes, the deliverer comes through Zion. This is another reference to the fact that it's not us supporting the root, 
but the root supporting us. And so we're given some knowledge, and the knowledge comes from the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord really is countering our spiritual pride. So since salvation has come through the people of Israel, it would be foolish to act pridefully against them. That's what he's going to tell us in verses 18, excuse me, in verses 19 and 20. Take a look there again. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Yes, that's true. You, they were broken off. God told, tells you that so that you might be grafted in. But they were broken off because of their unbelief. And you, when you stand, you're standing fast. That's not because you're really great or anything. It's because you trusted Christ. What credit do you get for His work? Well, it's accounted to you. It's what, it makes your righteous standing before God secure. But it's not because you did something. You trusted. You trusted what He accomplished. So where's the pride in that? <laughs> how, would I, how would I rise up in pride that I benefit from Christ's work? That should result in praise, not pride. And then he goes on and says this at the end of verse 20, so do not become proud, but fear. The remedy for arrogance is fearing God. Now sometimes when we talk about the fear of the Lord, I speak about it in its most positive aspects because I think that's a really important part of the fear of the Lord is the, the positive element. So we, we come to understand God's amazing power. And so we worship God and we come underneath His power. We come underneath His authority. We recognize His wisdom and beauty and we respond in worship and in awe and praise to Him. Here in this passage, the fear of the Lord is an awareness of God's ability to cut someone off. So this is not the, the most positive description of God's power and the fear of the Lord. This is actually really a, a deep, heavy expression of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is an awareness of God's sovereign right to cut off the Gentiles in this text. If they think that God owes them something... Um, or they think that they're more worthy than the Jews, then they're going to be residing in a place of self-confidence rather than confidence in the Lord. Again, let's look at the text. I want for us to make sure that this passage is speaking and I'm not doing all the talking. Verse 19, Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of unbelief. But you stand through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen off. What does He mean by severity? I'll remind you of some words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but can kill the soul. Uh, but cannot kill the soul, excuse me. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. So we're talking about severity right now. This is, this is heavy. What was the cause of God's severity toward the people of Israel? Unbelief. I keep reading the text because he's giving us the, the clue. Verse 20, they were broken off because of their unbelief. What is the cause of, of 
the Gentiles being grafted in. You stand by faith. So the difference, unbelief results in severity. Standing in faith results in kindness. Recognize the difference. Can you see the balance that he's playing there? It's very clear. Severity to those who have fallen away. Is the severity related to the sin of those who have fallen away? Yes. God judges based upon people's sin. However, if they turned from their sin, that sin would be removed for how long? For how long? Forever. When God forgives, He forgives as far as the east is from the west. So far have I removed your transgressions from you. God's forgiveness is eternal. So if they would turn from their sin, they would receive forgiveness. If they turn to Jesus, they would be in a right standing with God. This is the, the offer that's been made, but they resided in unbelief. One of the many great lessons that you and I need to embrace from this text is that God doesn't owe me anything. He doesn't owe me anything. He's done what's necessary to save me. He's called me in. And that call still goes out. Whosoever will may come. So the call is come. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. What will Jesus do? He'll give you rest. Well, it's a, it's a picture of receiving blessing and peace. Because we stand at enmity with God. In opposition to God. I oppose God. Yeah. Sinners oppose God. Sin puts a gap between us and God. Makes us in opposition to Him. But God calls out, come. He offers peace. Proper fear of God eliminates pride. And as we come to understand and appreciate who God is and who, uh, what God offers, we come into a saving relationship with Him. This comes by believing His Word. Look at verses uh, 22 and 23 again. We, we must believe God's Word. So we talk, don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. Fear the Lord. Believe the Word. Very simple. This is not complex. Believe the Word. Verses 22 and 23. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen off, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Even then, and even then, if they do not continue in their unbelief, the Jews will not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. The flip side of severity is kindness. Kindness. I want to talk about this kindness for just a minute. Because really, kindness, God's kindness is a feast for our soul. Jesus used the same word kindness in the passages I just mentioned in Matthew 11, verse 30. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus called us to that kindness, His kindness. Jesus, in speaking about the Father, said this in Luke chapter 6 and verse 35, He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. 
Peter talks about God's kindness, kindness this way. He says, if indeed you have tasted the, that God is good. And you remember that Paul earlier in the book of Romans in chapter 2 said it was the kindness of God that brought us to repentance. So the kindness he's talking about here is really precious. What is God's kindness? What's the greatest expression of God's kindness? It was about 2,000 years ago that God sent His Son, Jesus, into the world. Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. In the fullness of time, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. God's kindness is most clearly seen in the person of Jesus Christ. And the people of Israel had, to this point, rejected Him by and large. Those who have acknowledged their sin, turned away from their sin, and turned to Jesus Christ for their salvation have experienced only kindness. Have experienced only love. Have experienced only God's grace. Listen, if you're not sure about your eternal condition before God, don't leave today without dealing with this. There'll be people milling about in the front here after the church service ends. If you don't know about your eternal standing before God, come on up and say, hey, can you tell me about how I can know for sure I am going to spend eternity with God? And one of these people will be glad to show you from God's Word how you can be sure of your eternal salvation. So we move from don't be arrogant, fear God, Believe His Word. And we finish our time off this morning with this. And it's just a brief little touch because it's introducing next week's uh, subject. Look forward in hope anticipating God's mighty redemption. So if you want to make it nice and short like the other ones, don't be arrogant. Fear God. Believe uh, the Word. Look in hope. Look in hope. Look in hope for what? God is not finished. This whole passage keeps on telling us that. Has God set aside? Has God rejected His people, Israel? Has He, has he made it so that they'll, they'll never be, be coming back to Him? Has He just eliminated them from the face of the earth? Has God done that? And the answer again and again and again is absolutely not. Paul uses himself as an illustration. He cites an Old Testament example as an illustration. He uses a current day example as an illustration. Now he points forward. He says, listen, there's a day coming when all Israel will be saved. And so we take a look at verses 23 and 24 one last time. And even if they, or excuse me, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you uh, who were cut from uh, what by nature is a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Again, this is the subject of our discussion next week. If the Jews stopped resisting, if they stopped refusing to believe, they can be grafted in again. They can receive the promises. This is true of an individual Jewish person. And this is true of Israel at large. Take a look with me at one text of Scripture. This will be our last one. Take a look at Zechariah chapter 12. 
Zechariah chapter 12. Next week, we'll see that God has foretold of a day when the blinders will come off, the jealousy, the desire to receive the promises of God that they see in the people of the Gentiles will stir the Jewish people's hearts and they will call upon the name of the Lord. This is depicted beautifully in the book of Zechariah in these passages that we are touching on for a moment. Zechariah chapter 12, look at verses 10 and following. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Do you hear this? God is going to do something that is going to evoke, that is going to provoke, that is going to result in grace and a call, a cry for mercy. So that when they look on Me, on Him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over Him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, uh, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, listen carefully, each family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves and the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. And the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves and all the families that are left each by itself and their wives by themselves. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts. Oh, stop. Who? Who's the Lord of hosts? We sing about this in a song. Uh, Martin Luther, I think, was the penman. Lord of Sabaoth. <laughs> what? Lord of hosts means the Lord of the armies. The Lord of the armies. Who, who's going to do this one? The one who controls everything. Verse 2. And on that day declare, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of, of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. Do you see it? God is going to do a work to bring about this grace and this mercy that results in the salvation of the people of Israel. Look down at verse 9. Same passage. Zechariah 13.9 And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon My name. And I will answer them. I will say, they are My people. And they will say, the Lord is My God. Wait a second. Some magic words were just spoken. They will call on My name. Wait a second. This whole process, Romans 9, 10, and 11, 
I'm so sorry that my people, my kinsmen according to the flesh, have rejected God and have experienced judgment. I, I would give anything for their salvation. God is saving people. God is saving people. Why aren't they saved? They reject Him. They reject Him. They reject Him. Oh, but whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Chapter 11 comes along. Has God forever set them aside? No way! Here's some illustration. Here's an illustration. Here's an illustration. Here's another illustration about a tree. Root branches. They were cut off. They can be grafted in. How's all that going to work? I don't know, but I know who's going to do it. Anyone else stand that way? Like that's what this pa- passage is doing. He says, I am going to do this. My question for you is this. Do you believe Him? Yes. So, not arrogant. We fear God. Everything we have is from Him. Everything. Everything we have is from Him. We believe His Word. This results in salvation. And we look forward in hope recognizing that all the things that have been taking place all through these years since the coming of Christ and onward, of course before that as well, but from the coming of Christ and onward, all of this is in accordance with God's design and He's going to remove the blinders and God is going to bring in the greatest harvest, not only of Gentiles, when their fullness comes in, the partial blindness will be removed and all Israel will come in. This is what God's doing. Do we have all the answers to every part of it? No. Do we have enough information to trust God about it? Yes. So I might say this. Do not despair no matter what you see with your eyes. Respond, you and me, in continued faith and trust in God. Don't look on other people arrogantly. Don't look on people in your house with arrogance. Don't look on people, at people in the church with arrogance. Don't look at your neighbors with arrogance. Don't look at the culture around you with such vastly different views on everything. Don't look at them in arrogance. That doesn't mean you don't disagree with them. That doesn't mean that you're not correct and they're not correct. But understand, at the heart of their problem is something far greater than a political, social, medical view. Far greater than any of that is their real problem. What the problem is? They're blinded. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They need a Savior to open their eyes, to save them eternally, and to change the way they view this life. Don't look down on them. Look upon them with compassion don't be arrogant, but fear God. Fear God. God wants us to hold forth the offer of the gospel to others. We must not think that anyone is beyond the reach of the gospel. Do you see that? Do you believe that? No one is beyond the reach of the gospel. You know, there's so much in these texts. We take so long going through them, and I think sometimes we can lose, lose our attention because of how much. I'm trying to point to in these passages, don't lose the main idea. Don't be arrogant. Fear God. Believe the Word. Look forward in hope. Those are simple things that we can hang on to while we're holding forth the Word of truth to the world around us. Let's pray together.
Father, You know what we need. You know what's in each person's heart and mind. What our struggles are. We pray, Father, that You would do Your work in our lives. Help us not to look down upon others or look from a lofty position, but to fear You, recognizing that our blessings are as a result of Your work and not ours. And help us to call others to know Jesus Christ, to receive the benefits that we've received, and help us to know that you're going to accomplish this ultimately. Help us as means to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.